Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker, and I'm joined throughout the show um, by a new guest, Femi Nylander. Femi, welcome to your first Navarra Live. Um, you are a broadcaster, author, filmmaker. Um, can you tell me a bit about yourself? We don't normally have filmmakers on the show, so I, I, I want an introduction. Yeah, so I made a film a few years ago um, with a guy called Rob Lemkin um, about the French colonial invasion of Niger in, in West Africa called African Apocalypse. Um, and yeah, we, we, we kind of traced the footsteps of this colonial killer, Paul Voulet, um, spoke to a lot of um, the descendants of his victims and started to dig into that colonial past, which really isn't explored enough. Tonight, we're going to be discussing um, stop and search police powers and how the Home Secretary wants to increase their use. An instance of right-wing media trying to stop net zero climate efforts. It's their new obsession. And Andrew Tate has been charged. First, though, Britain is facing a mortgage crisis. That's because a long period of low interest rates meant house prices boomed. And now we have high interest rates. People are struggling to pay back the loans they took out to buy them. Jeremy Hunt, though, doesn't want to budge. Here is the Chancellor responding to a question on this issue from Jake Berry. People are very concerned with what is being described as the mortgage bomb about to go off. Is now the time for him to look at reintroducing a bold Conservative idea of mortgage interest relief at source? Because if we don't help families now, all the other money that we spent to help them will have been wasted if they lose their home. Well, no one could have a more doughty champion in Rossendale and Darwin than my right honourable friend. And I listen to what he says carefully. Um, but I think he will understand that those kind of schemes, which involve injecting large amounts of cash into the economy, right now would be inflationary. So much as we sympathise with the difficulties, and we'll do everything we can to help people seeing their mortgage costs go up, we won't do anything that would mean we prolonged inflation. Now, I hate that argument, right? Because on one level, it is true. Like The government can't just pump loads and loads of money into the economy at the moment because we do face high levels of inflation. Now, lots of that is, is cost-push inflation. It's not based on, on demand. It's based on the cost of, of supply and the cost of production increasing due to basically external factors, climate change, wars, et cetera, et cetera. But even if we were concerned about demand-push inflation or demand-pull inflation, which is, you know, there's too much demand in the economy. We need to take some of it out so we can get inflation down. The people you should not punish to achieve this, the people whose spending power you should not remove, are those people who might be struggling with mortgages or, more importantly, renters, right? What the government is doing with this interest rate increase is it is essentially saying, we need to remove demand from the economy, and we're going to remove all of this demand from the economy through the impoverishment of the bottom 50% of society, right? Because interest rates, you know who doesn't care about interest rates is people who already own their home outright. In fact, they might like high interest rates because they might have savings in the bank. If you've got savings in the bank, high interest rates could actually increase your spending power. So what we do by increasing interest rates and that being the only means by which we're going to tackle inflation, saying so we can't possibly give any more support to anyone else, what you're doing is you're making poor people poorer, rich people richer, because interest rates are going up, and it's a disaster, right? But, but the Tories love to use this technocratic language to say, oh, no, this isn't class war. This is just a technocratic issue. We couldn't possibly help anyone else when we've got this inflation. What should they be doing to, bring, to take demand out of the economy is taxing the rich, right? You could give people mortgage support if you tax the rich. You could give people 
you know, increases in housing benefits so they could afford to to live where they currently do, right? And you could pay for that by taxing the rich. That wouldn't be inflationary because you're taking demand out of the economy from the pockets of very rich people and you're putting it back into the economy, into the pockets of, of poorer people. It's neutral with regards inflation, but the government refused to do that. So they just say, sorry, we can't do anything because of inflation. Every question they're asked now, oh, we can't do anything because of inflation. Meanwhile, the BBC report that the average private tenant in the UK now spends over 28% of their pay before tax on rent. In London, that goes up to 40%. Um, obviously, as a proportion of income after tax, it's even higher, with the average for London being 53%. So typical Londoner is now paying 53% of their post-tax income on rent. Completely shocking. Although not shocking, of course, to viewers of this show. The issue, of course, isn't just in London. These are how rent levels have changed in different cities in the last 12 months. So Edinburgh is up top. Rents have gone up 13.7% in the year to April. In London, it's 13.5%. In Glasgow, 12.3%. Then you've got Southampton at, at 10. And you can see this is all across the UK. So Cardiff, Birmingham, Nottingham, Bristol, all there. Belfast, it is 4.3%. So that's one of the places where you would have the lowest rent increase over the last 12 months. You might be wondering why Edinburgh and Glasgow feature so highly on that list, given Scotland introduced rent controls last year. The BBC gives this analysis. They say Edinburgh and Glasgow feature high on the rental league table, partly because they score highly on quality of life and strong job markets, but there's more going on behind those numbers. The city's universities have gone on a recruiting spree for foreign students, putting pressure on the rental market, and the alliance of SNP with Scottish Green ministers in the Scottish government have risked distorting the market with rent controls. A freeze in rents and evictions was introduced last September and lasted until March. Also to help households facing rising costs, there's now a 3% cap on rent increases until next March Further, and more permanent rent controls are expected in Holyrood legislation later this year being drawn up and by Green MSP and Minister for Tenants' Rights, Patrick Harvey. However, there is no constraint on the rents at which landlords can advertise new tenancies. So according to property professionals, newly advertised rents have risen as landlords seek to protect their income against the impact of future constraints once tenants have moved in. So very interesting there. I am someone who definitely thinks there is a role for rent controls in housing policy, but um, if you introduce them without other sort of factors to go along with them to make sure that supply also increases at the same time, building shed loads of council homes, um, there will be difficulties. Also, I suppose the problem with a, a very short-term rent or a very short-term rent freeze, which this is just six months this time around, is that the landlord can increase it straight away afterwards. And then also because they're worried about future caps on rent increases, they might decide to say, oh, well, let's put it up loads this time around so that we can hedge um, against us having to keep rents at the level that they are currently in the future, right? So that's why they advertise them at higher rents. So mixed messages or mixed results, let's say, from Scotland. Um, recent increases in rents may in part, though I think this is overstated, be due to landlords passing on the cost of mortgage rate hikes to their tenants or just selling up. Um, and the BBC's World at One took the opportunity to have a very interesting conversation with a landlord. He's on an interest-only mortgage. I have a flat in London that I moved out of and moved to the West Midlands. I then rented the flat out and the mortgage at the time was £304 per month. The rental income was just over £1,000. With, with the last 12 months of increase after increase after increase, 
my mortgage has now gone up to £923 per month. Obviously, out of that £1,000 plus I'm getting from the tenant, and obviously I'm paying tax on that, I'm now subsidising him. I'm now subsidising him. Well, for a very long time, he was subsidising you, right? So if you're paying £300 a month on your mortgage payments, but you're getting £1,000 in rent, then that guy is subsidising you, right? And to a very large degree, £700 a month. Obviously, lots of people, this this isn't the landlord in the best situation in the world, because lots of people own homes outright, and then they're getting all this money when they don't have any outgoings at all, or just a tiny outgoing to sort of, you know, fix things every now and again, you know. Rent on so many properties, I mean, they wanted £3,100 a month for my free bed ex-council flat. It does not cost £3,100 a month to maintain that flat. So that money is going into someone's pocket. So that is me subsidizing their lifestyle. Now, suddenly, after years of it being you know, completely cushy for landlords, not only are you getting this monthly income, also the value of your asset is increasing year on year. Suddenly, um, you have to put a bit of money in yourself to keep that asset, and you're subsidizing them. We should, though, listen to a bit more of this interview, because I have to say, the context of this guy, he is not the most disgraceful landlord um, I've ever heard of. And I think the interview tells us more about how ridiculous our current economic system is than it does about this one particular landlord. I have now advised him that I will seek repossession. And the day before he was due to move, which was March the 17th, he said, I'm not moving. And so that's now plunged me into a court case. Could you put the rent up? I can only put it up by a maximum of 4% per annum, and I've kept it the same. He's been in there nearly three years, so I've kept it the same uh, mm-hmm. as it was when I first first rented it out. I've been in contact with a mortgage company there, being quite okay about it, but of course, the amount of money I'm paying has plunges me into arrears. I'm 74. I do work part-time, but there is no spare money. So any chance of thinking of going on holidays or going out for evenings, meals, what have you, that's gone. Now, why I say this tells us more about our economic system than it does about this particular gentleman is because, you know, he's working part, I don't know what his job is. I mean, maybe it's not a manual job or whatever, but working part-time at 74, pretty tough, right? He doesn't strike me as someone who is incredibly rich. And it might be the case, I mean, it sounds like it's probably the case, to be honest, that he was using this rental income in part to fund his, well, part retirement because he's still working part-time. And that is very common, right? So lots of landlords in this country are incredibly rich. I mean, in general, they're going to be a lot richer than their tenants because that's the nature of property ownership. But there will be some who aren't super rich. You know, they're just people who own a property and they're using that rental income essentially as their pension. Now, that to me seems reasonable from their perspective. I mean, I don't think it's admirable, but I don't think it's, you know, a a disaster. I don't think it's morally despicable, right? But as a way to run society whereby you say, okay, so we're going to have a pretty stingy pension system, but what we're going to do is make arbitrary, we're going to arbitrarily make younger people who don't own a property fund the pensions of people who have enough capital to buy a property. So you just, you just choose, you choose people, oh, you don't have a house. Why don't you pay this guy's pension? which is essentially what's going on. So many people across the country, you don't own a house, oh, you, you, you want somewhere to live? Pay this random guy's pension. Why are we making poor younger pe- people pay disproportionately wealthier, older people their pension? 
And then we think that's completely normal. Now, from the perspective of that guy, probably it is normal. I, I, maybe his pension's not very good. And as he said, he hasn't raised his rent on his on his tenant for three years. It doesn't sound like the worst landlord in the world. But it's just such a dysfunctional way to organize society. Femi, I feel like problems for renters, problems for, well, problems for mortgage holders are obviously in the news at the moment, but renters are getting more recognition than they have got in the past. It does seem like people are waking up to how crazy, how much of a disaster Britain's housing system is. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, I thankfully have managed to avoid <laughs> avoid rent for a while by by buying a boat and living <laughs> living on the river. Um, but I have I have plenty of friends who are forking over cash every month, every month, every month. And as you say, it's an age thing. Um, it's the case that uh, even the fact that, as you say, the people who are going to be hit by this policy uh, or by Hunt's refusal to implement this policy are the people who have properties but don't own them outright yet they're still paying a mortgage off and they're the people who are going to be slightly older start paying off the property but the oldest people or not the oldest people but the the older generation um who bought their properties at much lower house prices at reasonable house prices they could afford at the time and therefore much more likely to be able to pay them off um at reasonable rates are gonna they're not going to be touched by by this um and it's 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 almost as though the youngest who have nothing and who are renting are the ones <laughs> who are going to have to pay for this inflationary disaster which has been fueled by external issues um the price of gas and oil being being one um and also fueled by just the UK's inability or this Tory government's inability to to implement policies um, that have anything to do with the the welfare of the inhabitants, either of this country or other countries, which we'll get to later, I'm sure, when we talk about the net zero stuff. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like they, they throw around some A-level economics terms, oh, inflation here, inflation there, give very little analysis and use it to 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 excuse siphoning of wealth um, and putting it in the pockets of 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 the Duke of Westminster who owns half of, of London or or whoever it might be because these are the people who are not being hit by these policies even something like inheritance tax something as simple as having decent inheritance tax when these huge estates um, pass from one hand to another over generations and generations and generations would would help to deal with um, the massive inequality of wealth linked to property in this country but these are not conversations which are being had we're having conversations about how renters are subsidizing their their landlords very briefly because we've got lots of stories to get through but i can't resist this opportunity to seek some advice from you lots of people lots of our audience will be suffering rent increases or worrying about mortgage repayments should they pack it all in and buy a boat would you recommend that I would definitely recommend it. In in Oxford, I've got a very kind of cushy situation whereby I don't have to move. There's a loophole, which means that this land, you, you never have to move, really. Uh, in London, I know that it's more kind of like you, you either get a mooring or you do continuous cruising, which means kind of moving the boat every two weeks or so along the canals. But I mean, the, the underground, the great public, well, you have the underground service in, in, in London and it's easier to get around London than it is any other kind of major city near that size, as long as you park your boat or moor your boat is the correct term near a um near a tube station you can get around and um or you get an electric bike or, or something of those of, of that description i would definitely say for me it's been great um i've i've i've, I've enjoyed living on the river it's, it's a minimalistic lifestyle but it, it means that it's a lot cheaper to buy a boat than it is to buy a house but there is a lot of maintenance <laughs> 
I'm not sure I find it that appealing, but I suppose with every rent increase I get, it seems more, more plausible. Let's go to our next story. The government seems to have been caught off guard by the oncoming mortgage crisis, but they shouldn't have been. That's because Martin Lewis warned them about what would happen in October last year. On GMB this week, they played a clip of Lewis from October, then got him to provide an update. Look at those affordability tests. Look at things like mortgage holidays. Look at things like allowing people to be more flexible, extend and reduce their terms. And look at forcing the banks with the extra money they're making by putting mortgage rates up and not putting savings rates up at much stronger forbearance measures for people who can't pay. Regulator, Bank of England, government, you need a mortgage emergency plan now or there's a ticking time bomb. Well, Martin Ooh. joins us now. Um, they didn't heed your warning, Martin. No, well, they sort of did, and that's what makes it even more frustrating. On the back of that call in December, uh, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, held a mortgage summit. Uh, it was the bosses of all the big banks, the head of the regulator, him and me. Uh, I, I did actually ask for other mortgage specialists and charities to go with, but he wanted to keep the meeting small. So it was a very closed meeting. We sat in there in that mortgage summit. I, I raised the same issues, the same as I'm raising today. I talked about banks increasing their margins. In other words, they're putting mortgages up and they're not putting savings up by as much, so they make more money. And we, what we really need is soft or hard political pressure right now to say to them, either you make things better for mortgage holders or you make them better for savers, or best, you make them better for both. You stop profiteering on the back of increasing interest rates. But we got a lot of the banks sitting there and nodding. And many of the things I suggested, they argued they were already doing, like you could change your term, you could take a payment holiday, you could reduce the amount you pay temporarily, you could switch to interest only. But the big problem for me is they haven't made that easy. And what I was suggesting in that meeting is, first of all, those things need to be made reversible so that you know that if you can do it temporarily, you can go back without a problem. That isn't the situation. And second, they need to look at minimizing the impact on people's credit scores, because that's puts people off taking a form of action. It scares them that they're going to be disenfranchising themselves from other forms of borrowing for six years. Mm -hmm. But again, that hasn't happened. So the ultimate result of that mortgage summit was a tiny bit more communication to, uh, to uh, borrowers, but not the whole scale communication about what you do if you're in, in trouble. And we haven't really seen much change. So the truth is, you've just seen that clip. That was last October. Mm -hmm. They can't say they weren't warned. I said at the time it was a mortgage ticking time bomb, and I'm afraid that time bomb is now exploding. I was a bit confused about what Martin Lewis meant about going back from mortgage holidays. So was Richard Madeley, so he asks about it. Martin Lewis um, then goes into an answer which I think really sums up where we are in Britain right now. Have a look. When you say uh, that if you take a, a mortgage holiday, there's then a problem when you go back. What do you mean? Uh, mortgage, mortgage holiday is slightly different. Mortgage holiday, forgive me, that, that was misphrasing by me. Mortgage holiday is more difficult to get. It's about the changing your term, you know, the temp and in order to reduce what you pay. It's about shifting to interest only temporarily. It's about giving people flexible tools. And, and, and this is really important because, I mean, ultimately, there is very little that we can do to protect people. If interest rates are going to be high over three or four years, people are going to have to readjust their finances. Um, there is nothing else we can look at. They're going to have to readjust their finances. And that's going to be a nightmare. I can't see this government bringing in a mortgage rescue package, even if it wanted to do so. I mean, the whole point of putting interest rates up, let's be absolutely blunt here, 
You put interest rates up to remove money from the economy. You do that by giving people less disposable income. So in a way, putting rate, interest rates up is having the desired effect by squeezing people on mortgages. And what we saw last winter and will continue to see is energy bills being so high, and they're still going to be that high this winter, um, is effectively taking money out, disposable income out of the lowest and low to middle earners. And now the mortgage squeeze is going to take it out of many mid and mid to high earners. We are taking money out of the system. And that's why we put up interest rates. Yeah. I just think we need to think very carefully. Do we really want to do that to people? Do we really want to push the economy to contract that much? And remember too, and I mentioned this in the mortgage summit, um, the impact on mortgages has a big knock-on effect for many renters who are seeing record proportions of their disposable income going on rents at the moment that's making that unaffordable. And we, we are heading for trouble. Yeah. And I think you know the whole point of what I called for last October and why we had the meeting in December was the idea was you have to come up with the plans and put the put the the, the some of the mitigation measures in place before you get to the crisis because when you do it once you're in crisis it's already too late and Martin, we had that meeting yeah and I, we didn't do it now I just thought that was so well put right so he's saying how have the government gone about taking demand out of the economy right first of all there was an energy crisis. Obviously, the government didn't cause that, right? But there was an energy crisis which put energy prices up. And what did that do? That hit the spending power of people at the bottom of the income spectrum. Now, why, why did it only hit people at the bottom of the income spectrum? Obviously, everyone got increases to their energy bills. But if you're very wealthy, then you get an increase to your energy bill and you, you know, it doesn't make that much of a difference to your budget. You're not going to cut back on what you normally spend your, your money on, your leisure time, your theatre tickets, because your gas bill's gone up a bit. It's not significant. But if you're at the lower end of the income scale, then when your gas bill goes up, you are trying to cut any kind of spending which isn't completely essential everywhere. Now, obviously, the reason we're in this, this huge cost of living crisis is because there are many people where there is no non-essential spending to cut. So there are lots of people really good Joseph Roundtree report out sort of talking about all the millions and millions and millions of people who are cutting back on essentials. So that's like food, basic clothing, heating, the kind of stuff that isn't discretionary spending, right? So that took demand out of the economy from the lower end of the income spectrum. Now what we're seeing is demand is being taken out of the economy from people who were recently on the housing ladder. So as he's saying, that's going to be you know, lower middle class people or younger middle class people and the people who've got off scot-free through all of this are the very rich. So the very rich who own their assets outright, the people who already own their homes without a mortgage. Now, of course, not everyone who owns their home without a mortgage is going to be incredibly rich. That's a generational thing. But um, you are in an economically privileged situation because of all the reasons we've just talked about, right? Interest rates aren't going to affect you so much. And obviously, the super rich, whatever age they are, don't have to get their homes on a mortgage, right? You can just get your mum or your dad to, to buy you outright. This flat your parents probably bought it because what they want is an asset in a in a city which will appreciate in value. So for them, it's just an investment. For you, as the child of the elite, you get to live there without a mortgage. So it works perfectly for you. So what we're doing at the moment is we're squeezing demand out of the economy for everyone, everyone except the very, very rich. And in fact, the very, very rich, because they've got assets, they're going to be getting even richer. Their spending power is going to be increasing. The more they spend, the harder it is to bring down inflation. So Tax the rich, tax the rich. I mean, we could, we could end so many segments on this show by saying the moral of the story is to tax the rich, but I don't think we can say it enough. So I will say it one more time, tax the rich. Let's go on to our next story.
Stop and search is a controversial policing technique that disproportionately affects black people. Campaigners argue that racial targeting by the police undermines community trust, making victims less likely to come forward. But despite these concerns, Home Secretary Suella Bravman has written to all 43 police forces in England and Wales, encouraging them to ramp up the use of stop and search. Giving a statement in the House of Commons, she had this to say about concerns around targeting young black men. It would be a tragic mistake to conclude that stop and search is too controversial to use extensively, or that it cannot be used effectively with sensible safeguards. Suggestions that it is a means of victimising young black men have it precisely the wrong way round, Mr Speaker. The facts are that young black men are disproportionately more likely to be victims of violent crimes. They are the ones most in need of protection. This is about saving the lives of young black men. Mr Speaker, black people account for around 3% of our population, yet almost a third of under-25s killed by knives are black. 99 young people lost their lives to knife crime in England and Wales in the year ending March 2022. 31 of them were black. 49 were white, 16 were from other ethnic minority groups, and three victims did not have their ethnicity recorded. It's always bad policy to place unsubstantiated theories ahead of demonstrable fact. In this case, it would be lethal. Mr Speaker, stop and search works. It's always heartbreaking and distressing to read reports about stabbings and shootings. I'm struck by how often mothers of murdered young black men say that stop and search could have saved their sons' lives. We owe it to them to heed their call. The facts are on their side. So the argument being made there is that disproportionately stopping and searching young black men protects other young black men from knife crime. But does that argument have any merit? Well, according to the Office for National Statistics, black people, by proportion of the population, are four times more likely to be victims of homicide than white people. But according to figures also from the Office for National Statistics, in 2021, black people were stopped and searched seven times more frequently than white people. In that year, represented by the dark blue bar, 54.2 black people were stopped for every 1,000 black person in the population. Meanwhile, just 7.7 white people were stopped for every 1,000 white people in the population. It's also important to know why people are stopped. The police have two powers to stop and search a person, Section 1 and Section 60. To use a Section 1 stop and search power, a police officer must have a reasonable suspicion that the person is carrying something illegal, like drugs or a weapon. To use a Section 60 stop and search power, also called suspicionless stop and search, an officer doesn't need to have any grounds at all. This power can be used to stop an individual if the officer simply believes that violence might take place in the area they're in. So the suspicion isn't on the person, it's on the area. Now, it's not hard to imagine how this might lend itself to prejudice, and accordingly, the Office for National Statistics finds that suspicionless stop and search is particularly disproportionate when it comes to black people. At least 20% of suspicionless stop and searches are carried out on black people, despite their making up only around 4% of the population, and stop and search isn't even mostly used for weapons. That's according to the Inspectorate for Constabulary, They're the police watchdog, who say this. 
Stop and search is predominantly used to search for drugs. The high prevalence of searches for possession of drugs rather than supply potentially indicates that efforts are not being effectively focused on force priorities. Forces often cite county lines as a reason for stop and search, but to be most effective, policing tactics to address this need to target drug supply more effectively. And the widely different approaches taken by forces suggest a lack of standardised policy and procedure. Drug enforcement, mainly through stop and search, contributes to ethnic disproportionality, despite evidence that there is no correlation between ethnicity and rates of drug use. A year ago, the House of Commons Library published a report into the effectiveness of stop and search. They looked at a three-year period in London when the Met ramped up suspicionless stop and search to try to reduce knife crime. Um, They reported this, an analysis of Operation Blunt 2. Now, I can't believe they called this Operation Blunt without the blunt instrument of stop and search. But in any case, an analysis of Operation Blunt 2, a metropolitan police service initiative to tackle knife crime run between 2008 and 2011, commissioned by the Home Office, found no discernible crime-reducing effects from a large surge in stop and search activity at the borough level. However, positive impacts of stop and search at a lower level might have been masked by this borough level analysis. Operation Blunt 2 involved officers working across London, but its activity was concentrated in 10 boroughs deemed to be most affected by knife violence. Increased use of stop and search, particularly Section 60 searches, was central to the operation's strategy to create a hostile environment for those who routinely carry knives. Analysis of ambulance callouts associated with weapons-related injuries during Operation Blunt 2 showed larger reductions in callouts in boroughs with smaller increases in weapons searches. And the College of Policing concluded that stop and search should be used carefully in response to knife crime. Femi, what do you make of the argument that Suella Bravman was putting forward there? So she's essentially saying, yes, um, stop and search might disproportionately affect black people, but so does knife crime. And therefore, we're doing this in the interests of, of young black men. Well, I mean, as you say, Operation Blunt, it's funny in one regard because it's like the blunt hand of the law. It's funny in the other regard because blunt obviously refers to a marijuana <laughs> cigarette without any tobacco in. And as you've already pointed out, uh, for Suella Braverman to act like the only reason that um, stop and search happens is knife crime and that drugs aren't a huge part of it, um, is it ties into this whole narrative she's trying to spin through this kind of dog whistle stuff about black men being violent and and she gets away with this stuff because largely i mean this is why it's, it's not just her it's quasi quoting it's it's richard to a degree as well that they, they they the demonization of migrants the going on breakfast tv and saying that pakistani men are more likely to molest young girls which is demonstrably false um this kind of stuff um they they, they love to put minorities in these roles to get away with kind of saying stuff that they can't get stories usually can't get away with saying themselves and pushing themselves further and further down this this slippery slope but yeah i think the reality of the matter is that stop and search has for a long time i've been stopped and searched multiple times a long time been a racist policy which is completely disproportionately applied um and most of the time um even the mps who 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 come out in support of it haven't had the gall to literally come out and say well it's a good thing it's a good thing that black men are more likely to be stopped and searched than than um, white men or white males um, or black people in general. We can't forget the the, the young girl who was <laughs> searched in a school because they thought she had weed on her, a strip search who was, who was less than 16 years old um, not too long ago. Um, and it's, it, it's a racist policy. It's a policy which allows the internalized bias um, against 
black people in particular, which is which is heavily entrenched in the um, police force uh, in the United Kingdom and has been for decades to 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 express itself freely. Um, and it's 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 a, it's a policy. If you look at it in terms of drugs, white people are <laughs> less likely to smoke weed or sniff cocaine or indulge in ketamine than 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 black people or Pakistani people or anything like that. It's 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 just it's just prejudice. At the end of the day, it's prejudice. And yeah, the Tory Party would loves having someone like Suella Braverman because you you can't point to her and say she's racist because she is a minority herself, supposedly. Yeah, I think that drugs point is so so crucial you know that black people are disproportionately stopped in search for drugs but black people do not disproportionately use drugs compared to to white people i think that's you know presumably why suella breverman likes to focus on knife crime let's move on to our next story from the 1980s onwards oil companies and the right-wing media fought a powerful campaign against the idea that humans caused climate change it's because of that misinformation campaign that we're in such dire straits now but the right are still at it of course they've had to change tactics. They're no longer able to say climate change doesn't exist. So instead, they say tackling climate change will simply be too expensive. So even if we might like to tackle it, we can't possibly do it. Now, leading the charge in the UK on this front is the Murdoch-owned Sun newspaper, who have published this article, Eco-Elites. Sun poll shows clueless MPs have no idea of the pain policies like net zero inflict on ordinary Brit families. Now, there are lots of tropes there. Anyone who wants to tackle climate change is an elite, and net zero is associated only with costs, impoverishment, not the opportunities a green industrial revolution might in fact provide. But let's look more closely um, at the argument that the Sun are making here, and whether or not it stacks up. They write this, clueless politicians have no understanding of the pain policies like net zero will inflict on the public, a damning survey shows. A massive 62% told a YouGov poll for The Sun that getting prices down is more important than achieving carbon neutral status by midway through this century. So this is the lead result of, of the poll that The Sun is pushing. This is the first sentence. It gets the most prominence. And the implication is that politicians should do more about the cost of living and less about climate change. They're put in this dichotomous relationship with each other. However, further down in the article, it says this. So the poll, the Sun's own poll, found 65% of people back the idea of net zero, with just one in five not supporting the policy in any form. So how did the Sun get from this result that people in fact back net zero and by an overwhelming margin to the conclusion that politicians backing net zero are completely out of touch? Well, they did it with a number of leading questions and some misleading stats. Let's start with this statement made by The Sun. More than half of the voters that gave the government their massive majority in 2019 do not believe net zero can be hit without making life harder for the cash-strapped public. This focus on Tory voters might seem arbitrary, but it isn't an accident. And that's because if The Sun were to write up their article in terms of the general public, it would tell a completely different story. Right? So as you can see here, when you ask everyone, is it possible to hit net zero without hitting cost of living? 37 people say yes. 37% of people say no, and 26% of people say don't know. So the public couldn't be more divided. It's completely ridiculous to say that politicians are out of touch when they are agreeing with at least half of the public, right? So actually, politicians who think we can get to net zero without wrecking people's lives aren't out of touch. They agree with half the population. The Sun wants to change that. They don't like it being this divided. They want an overwhelming majority of people to be against climate action. And this is where the misleading statistics come in. 
Ministers have set the ambitious 2050 target, but it means upfront pain by 2035 for anyone replacing their boiler and expensive electric cars by the end of this decade. On the back of our poll results, MPs and peers last night called for a slowdown, warning net zero risks making lives less free, more costly and more miserable. Households face paying out at least £10,000 for new central heating systems, such as heat pumps, and an average £50,000 for a green car. Now, why do I say this is misleading? Right? It does look scary. I don't want to pay £10,000 for a heat pump. I don't want to spend £50,000 for a car. I mean, I can't drive, but putting that to one side. Um, and I would say, why is this misleading? Well, firstly, while heat pumps are currently expensive, we can't deny that, they are likely to dramatically decrease in price by 2035. We'll have more people trained how to install them. You'll get, get economies of scale and the like. And it's 2035, which is the year when people actually need to buy them. So right up to then, you're still able to buy whatever kind of boiler you want. Now, Nesta is a think tank which has modelled how heat pumps could become cost competitive by the end of the decade. And they've written this. Although heat pumps are currently more expensive than gas boilers, it should be possible to close the gap with relatively few minor changes, especially to running costs. Air-to-water heat pumps are typically around four times more efficient than gas boilers. Moves to reduce the price of electricity would have a particularly big impact on heat pump adoption. Other countries with much higher rates of heat pump adoption typically have much cheaper electricity. So they're saying, if we bring down the price of electricity, at the moment we have very cheap gas. Well, not right now, obviously, because of the war in Ukraine. But until then, we had had quite cheap gas and electricity was relatively expensive compared to other countries. Obviously, if we're moving to a greener system, we should make electricity cheaper and gas more expensive. Let's go on to electric cars. Now, this is an even more positive story to tell. This is from an article from Sky News in February 2022. So they write, battery electric vehicle prices have already fallen dramatically and are expected to reach parity with petrol or diesel cars between 2025 and 2027 and be cheaper very soon after. The average motorist should save £700 a year in fuel costs by switching, according to New Automotive, a research group aiming to accelerate the shift to electric. The price drop is partly due to advancements in the batteries set to tumble further still, as well as car makers producing more mass market cars. Now, the war in Ukraine has set this back a little um, as the price of the raw materials needed for batteries has gone up. Of course, the price of oil has also gone up. But that international event shouldn't make a huge difference, especially as people will still be able to use their petrol-powered cars or buy second-hand ones long after 2030. It's not like your car is going to get taken away from you the moment the clock strikes midnight on the 31st of, of December 2029. It's just the sale of brand new cars which will be affected. So lots of the scare stories here often ignore the fact that the point of these regulations and these changes is often to change the behavior of producers as much as it is consumers. So you saw that with the sugar tax. You could say, oh, they're going to implement a sugar tax. That's going to make soft drinks so much more expensive and punish poor people. Now, what actually happened was that the soft drink producers just reduced the amount of sugar that was in the cans, right? So we didn't have to spend more on soft drinks. They just got slightly less sweet. And I think you can look at lots of the climate change debate in a similar way as that. But then you have companies like the Murdoch Press, like News International, who are desperate to say, oh, these people who just want to make the world you know, less catastrophic, they're also going to make you poor and miserable. Femi, why do you think newspapers like The Sun are so committed to attacking popular ideas, in fact, such as net zero? Well, I think with ideas like net zero, the first thing to remember is that, I mean, you saw it with the first article you said, right, it will hit Brits. It's about Brits. It's about here. And this is one thing which Western countries often miss when we're talking about climate change. Um, the fact that people are already suffering they're already suffering um, the effects of 
um, the effects of catastrophic um, famines, of, of, of flooding, etc., all over the world. But it's not really hit here yet in Britain to the same level. And that means that we can we, we don't have to think about it. And it will hit here. And it will hit here. And it will hit people in a way that is a lot more severe than the cost of living crisis today. It's an existential threat to, to, to humankind. I think the other thing is that people in the UK, um, in general, the people at the very top sliver are using fossil fuels at a level which is much, much more than um, the majority of people in the UK. And the Sun newspaper, Daily Mail, these kind of newspapers, part of their purpose is to um, draw attention away from the elites at the very top who are flying their private jets, who are, have who are using huge, huge, huge houses, which cost um, a lot of money to heat and use a lot of oil to heat who are driving their Range Rovers and kind of pointing at the everyman. So I think it's somewhere in between. On the one hand, British people, as a general populace, do far much more than they should when it comes to fossil fuels compared to other, other countries. And part of the story of climate change is that the average Brit is, um, is, 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 is going to benefit from something which is going to which is currently affecting people on the other side of the planet in awful ways who are not contributing to it in the same way as the average Brit. But also obfuscated by the Murdoch press is the fact that the average Brit isn't using as much as the same billionaires who the Murdoch press ultimately work for. Um, and transitioning to using solar panels, insulating our homes, um, doing all of these things, like instilling within the populace um, more of a minimalistic and um, communalistic um, approach to life rather than this constant buy more, get more, own more that we have now in the UK um, are all, all, all good things which could easily be funded if, as you mentioned earlier, we just tax those at the very top a little bit more. There's just one more statistic um, I want to take a look at before we move on from this. Um, I saw it on Twitter today. It's from Tom Hancock. He is uh, a reporter on China for Bloomberg. Um, So he says, China is forecast to build 975,000 electric car charging stations this year. That would be more than double the installations that Bloomberg expects from every other country in the world combined. Now that is incredible, right? So China is going to build double the amount of electric charging stations as every other country in the world combined. Now, people often say, often this is always a right-wing talking point as well, actually, when you talk about climate action. What's the point in us doing anything? You know, China dwarfs our emissions anyway. Now, China does dwarf our emissions. That's because 1.4 billion people live there and we have a population of 70 million people. So it's, it, it's very normal, right, that their emissions would dwarf ours. But China is doing something. So the implication of that is always, why are we doing all this when China isn't bothering to green their economy? Now, they're building twice as many charging stations in a year as the rest of the world combined. China is doing something, right? But then you've got the Murdoch press, which I have to say, I mean, it, I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a grim um, sort of phrase to use in this context, but they are just encouraging the government to twiddle their thumbs while the world burns, right? They're saying, oh no, it's all too difficult. Um, we can't possibly try and get to net zero. Um, there's no way that we could make electric cars cheaper or heat pumps more efficient or electricity cheaper. Let's just stay exactly as we are. That's all they seem to want. I mean, to be honest, I think the sun would take us further than we are right now. And they'd say, let's lower taxes on fuel even further than it is you know, at, at the moment. But what they want is to just 
make sure we are hurtling straight towards catastrophe and history is not going to forgive them. Let's go to our final story of the evening. Andrew Tate has been indicted in Romania on charges of rape, human trafficking, and forming an organized crime group to sexually exploit women. The influencer who preaches misogyny and teaches get-rich-quick schemes to his millions of male followers will appear before a Romanian judge on Wednesday morning. Also facing charges is his brother Tristan Tate. Like Andrew, he's accused of sex trafficking and forming an organized crime group, as well as inciting violence against others. Two female associates have been charged alongside the brothers for being part of their criminal gang. Back in December, Andrew and Tristan Tate were arrested by the Romanian authorities. Despite free hearings to free them, the Tates remained in jail for 12 weeks, with the courts arguing that they would pose a flight risk if released. In March, they were released from custody, but have been under house arrest since. According to Romanian authorities, the four facing charges formed a criminal gang in 2021 with the intention of committing human trafficking in Romania, the US and the UK, as well as other countries. They also name seven alleged victims who say they were recruited by the Tate brothers through false promises of love and marriage. Now that's known as, quote, the lover boy method. The Tates have been explicit about making money by taking a cut of the profits made by young women performing sex acts on webcam sites. In a 2020 interview, Andrew Tate explained how he got them to work for him. I thought, ah, pretty girls can sit on computers and make money. And that's kind of how it started. Uh, went from there and ended up having a bit of a cam empire. At one point, I was doing half a million a month profit. So, yeah, it got big. Um, and and that was it, really. I I, I never really was but never now a, worth. But not worth half a million a month, you're saying. The headache was too big for half a million a month. The, the thing is this. You must have hated it. It must have gotten really bad. When you're working with women, women are highly unpredictable. So, and, and women are not money motivated. So I got to a point where the only way you can really get the women to work for you, you have two choices. You either try and convince them into some kind of business arrangement, which doesn't work long-term because women are emotional, or you get girls who are in love with you and do it because they love you and they want to do as you say and be around you. In another interview, Tate went into details of how he maximized the income he made from the women. So I used to pay my girls 30%. So for every $10,000 they made, I give them three, and I keep seven. They thought they were on 50%, and I said that the disparity is because of taxes. So you're on 50%, and we get to pay the tax first, and then it's 50-50. So really, you're paying 30, you tell them you're paying 50, the difference is in the tax. That's where the disparity lies, taxes. If, you, if they don't believe you, or they want to get fresh or whatever, print out some tax forms. I see this all the time, I to print out some random tax forms, and say, yeah, sign here, sign this. What is it? So the tax, you want to pay the tax or not? Ooh, okay, and they just sign away. I don't know what the fuck signing. I'll throw them away afterwards. But they, they think something's happening. Something real is happening. Nothing's happening. So we get rich, bitch. As well as charging the Tate brothers and their associates, the Romanian authorities have seized a stack of cash and assets. Sky News reports this. In a statement announcing the decision to move to trial, Romania's directorate for the investigation of organized crime and terrorism said authorities has seized Bitcoin worth an estimated £301,000 from cryptocurrency wallets belonging to the Tates. They also seized 15 buildings and areas of land, 15 luxury cars, 14 luxury watches, two ingots, their blocks of usually precious metal, and a medal as part of their investigation. A Romanian judge now has 60 days to inspect the case files before it can be sent to trial. But according to the BBC, if the case does go ahead, it's expected to last several years. A spokesperson for the Tates gave this statement to the media. While this news is undoubtedly predictable, we embrace the opportunity it presents to demonstrate their innocence and vindicate their reputation. 
Tate's legal team are prepared to cooperate fully with the appropriate authorities, presenting all necessary evidence to exonerate the brothers and expose any misinterpretations or false accusations. How grim is it? How dark a place have we got to where one of the heroes of masculinity in the Western world is being charged for crimes such as this? It's very interesting when you look at the rise of Tate, right? One of the things which propelled him to to, to the public eye is the fact that he was on Big Brother and as, as a celebrity kickboxer or, or whatever. And he got expelled from Big Brother. He got expelled from Big Brother for a video emerging of him whipping a woman with a belt and um, <laughs> calling her slurs, right? Um, awful behavior from the offset. And he utilized that as a way to get this platform. And on this platform, obviously, he just constantly spews horrific misogyny um, over and over and over. And people buy into it. And he openly says, I mean, there's two videos you showed. There's another video of him saying, part of the reason I like Romania um, is because of the fact that you don't get prosecuted. They don't they don't come and prosecute you for, 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 for sexual abuse and assault and all this. And I'm not a rapist, but I like the fact that it's not like the UK where anyone can come up to you. And he, he says he says these ridiculous things. And part of the reason he has this following is this incel community online, this kind of community of men who feel that they are that the, the women themselves are in some way um are in some way abusing them, but also men who just think women are inferior. Andrew Tate in in many of his videos he gives the idea that women are inferior. He says something like, Oh, I would only let my girlfriend do an OnlyFans if I was the one collecting um the money because that's my product that you're selling. He has this completely regressive attitude to women. And this regressive attitude is what has propelled him to prominence in a lot of these online spaces. And then the same people who are following him, cheering him when he's making this content, um, not to say that some of these people aren't impressionable and kind of getting dragged into it, but a lot of it's, 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 a, it's a cycle, right? The same people who are somehow elevating his position by, by supporting these views then get surprised and say, oh, no, 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 there's no, there, there could be no basis in these allegations being true in him actually being involved in sex racketeering, in, in international trafficking, in, in, in allegations of rape, etc. Despite the fact that his very rise was based on him being thrown off a, um, a, a, a game show for a video emerging of him abusing a woman. It's, 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 as you say, it represents something very dark and it shows that people with these views are able to utilize these views themselves to get into positions of prominence and accrue wealth for themselves. Andrew Tate has accrued a huge amount of wealth for himself through, um, through basically platforming these ideas. Uh, it's very dark, as you say, and it's something which, which needs to be addressed, um, which needs to be addressed by, by, by those of us in the left. Let's wrap up there. Femi, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this evening. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, I'm off for a week now. I'm going to go to Glastonbury, but you'll be in very safe hands. Um, there'll be someone else in the chair until this time next week. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.